You are listening to Climate Now. I'm James Lawler. And I'm Catherine Gorman. And today we're joined by Simon Watson, professor of wind energy systems at Delft University of Technology, TU Delft, and director of the TU Delft Wind Energy Institute. Simon is joining us to discuss the state of the art in wind renewable energy technology, where we are today, and what we need to do to reach our wind energy goals in the coming decades. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Let's start by getting a sense of where we are now in using wind energy. Can you tell us what percentage of the primary energy used globally comes from wind? Not primary energy, but electricity. I can say it's about 6% comes from wind energy at the present time. So it's still at the moment a relatively small amount. But if you look at what the projections are, you know, if you look at organizations like the International Renewable Energy Agency, and the International Energy Agency, the, the, the projections are that we should be producing around about 30 to 35% of our electricity from wind energy by 2050. We're going to meet our carbon reduction targets and, and keep the temperature rises to global heating to within the reasonable limits of about one and a half to two degrees. So we're looking at potentially you know, a five times increase in the next around 30 years to meet those targets. Hmm. Well, you know, and we'd like to spend most of today exploring what kind of innovations are happening and what kinds of innovations are still needed to reach those targets. But let's do a little more place setting first, if we could. So how fast is the wind energy sector growing and what is where is that growth happening? Yeah, well, perhaps it's no surprise that China is, is leading the way very much with, wind, with uh, installations of wind power. I mean, China obviously has expanded dramatically in, in the last 20, 30 years, the societies opened up. Uh, and obviously they, they need lots of energy to, to do that. A lot of it's still coming from coal, but you know there is a great potential because they've got a lot of open space in China, which can be used for, for wind power. And they see that they can't continue down the route of fossil fuel burning forever. It is having an impact on, on the air quality in many parts of, of that country. So there is a push there now to, to develop wind power because, because there are, you know, so there is a space available and they need the energy. Mm-hmm. Um, also in the US, of course, the US is trying to increase the amount of wind power, partly for decarbonization, I guess, but also because the energy is required. And, and again, there are large areas of the country where people don't necessarily, or very few people live, so that there is the opportunity to build wind farms there and then there are parts of the world, of course, that are still developing that need wind power, some parts of Asia, some parts of South America, where the economy is still growing and they need energy. And at the moment, wind power is seen as being one of the, certainly onshore, as being one of the cheapest forms of power generation available. So, so those are some of the reasons, I guess, that some of these countries are, are investing in wind power. And you said that 6% of current global electricity was coming from wind power, right? So, so how much is that in terms of installed capacity or gigawatts? How fast is that number growing? Right. Well, if you look at total numbers in raw installed capacity terms, last year, I think around about 800 gigawatts of wind power was installed globally. Mm-hmm. And, and if you look at the year-on-year installations, last year was a record year. It was significantly greater than in 2019. Uh, in terms of China and the US, that will certainly in China that will, that will constitute a large fraction of that. That's onshore. Offshore, the story is 
slightly different. Obviously, that that's at a much earlier stage of development. But again, China's starting to catch up there, and the U.S. is is just starting to dip its toe in the water, if you want to put it in that way. I think half of the offshore installations were from China, but Europe has kind of led the way in offshore, particularly on the northern European coasts, have been looking at developing offshore wind. So I think the total capacity of wind, as I said, is around 800 gigawatts, and about 35 gigawatts of that is offshore. And that's total. That's in total 800 gigawatts. Yeah, is that right? That's right. Yeah. That's so right. I believe China installed something like 75 in the 70s. I think gigawatts capacity just is. Was it just last year? So roughly 10% of the total global capacity was installed by China in China last year. If it's 70 gigawatts, actually, that's quite the lion's share, because I think about 90 to 100 gigawatts was installed last year. Yeah, so, but I mean, as a percentage of the total installed capacity ever, yes, you know, we're, we're yes, talking about yes. China installing 10% of that, a little less than 10% of that just last year. Just in one year, yes. And indeed, yes, far yes. more than anyone else did last year alone. Yeah. So China's like, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of the pack, it seems. Indeed, indeed. I mean, in, in China, if they want to build something, they will build it. You know, one of the challenges that China often has is that the development of the grid can't always keep up with the building of the wind farms. Hmm. Now, that's not just a problem in China, actually, that other parts of the world in South America, I think there, there are similar issues sometimes. But you're right that they are building wind farms and other forms of power generation <laughs> at a phenomenal rate. So that's a, a nice segue into our next question, which is about the challenges of increasing wind energy use. What do you see as the greatest constraint today or constraints today to wider scale adoption of wind energy? Constraints? Well, as I mentioned grid already, and that is one of the constraints, of course, access to the grid. It, some parts of the world, the, the grid is, is quite robust, but even in, like in Europe and in, in the US, of course, uh, and parts of Asia, it, it is robust. But even there, you know, if you're putting new capacity in, the grid can start to reach its own capacity and, and then you have to build new transmission lines to take that power but some parts of the world of course the grid is very weak and although there are large areas of land available that you can uh, build wind farms getting the power from those wind farms to the load centers is is a challenge so mm. grid is one of the big challenges mm -hmm. in, in some of the areas which are more developed like in europe the big challenge is is where to put them where people don't see them as an eyesore or, or something which can cause noise problems and that's very much driven people to look to alternative sites like offshore, you know, particularly mm -hmm. in Northern Europe. We've been moving offshore because of these sort of objections to, to on land. And of course, just logistically, there are the challenges of having the equipment to install wind farms in, in the quantities that are being demanded. There's also issues to do with the availability of some of the raw materials, just things like steel or the materials used to make the generators. That can obviously be a, a barrier to the installation rates and of course you've got issues due to the ongoing maintenance of the wind farms themselves once they are built i guess that's not a barrier to installation but it's a barrier to the costs in some cases and how competitive are these costs with other sources of renewable energy at the moment onshore wind power is looking like one of the cheapest and the prices that, that are being offered into the European markets for onshore wind have been around about sort of 50 to 60 euros per, per megawatt hour. Mm -hmm. a, a little bit more offshore, but offshore is seeing a phenomenal decrease. You know, in offshore, we've seen a reductions 
in price of around 70% just in eight years. Uh, wow. Which is really quite a phenomenal decrease. Is that being driven by simply more installations, cheaper installations? What's driving the drop in offshore yeah. wind power cost? Yeah, I, I think it's just experience now. In the early days, when we were building offshore wind farms, people were inexperienced. They weren't quite sure the best way to do things, the best way to, to maintain the wind farms once they were built. And mistakes were made in the designs as well, because a lot of the early offshore wind turbines were simply onshore designs that were made effectively marine proof. Uh, and that wasn't really good enough for the conditions that we're seeing off offshore, with the wind, wind and waves and so on. Mm -hmm. So I think people have learned very rapidly what's the best way to build the turbines to, to install them. And, and that's driven the cost. And, and to some extent, economies of scale have helped as well. And tell us a little bit more about that. So what are some of the technological differences between onshore wind and offshore wind when it comes to the the materials used, the, the construction, the mechanism itself of the turbines? Can you talk us through those differences? So the basic drivetrain is broadly the same, whether it's onshore or offshore. I suppose the biggest difference is more in the foundation structures. So you've got the, the, the tower, which in an onshore wind farm, so you build some kind of concrete foundation, you attach it to that relatively straightforward technology in a way. Off, offshore, you have to have some form of system where you, you have a transition piece, which then connects the tower of the turbine to whatever's connected to the seabed. Very often it's a monopile that's driven into the seabed. Sometimes if the water's a little bit deeper, it might be some more complicated structure, jacket structure or tripod structure. So that's very much different to the situation you have onshore. And then of course, I, I think I mentioned that you've got combined wind and wave loading on the structure, which you need to take into account. Whereas onshore, it's just the wind you're concerned about. So you need to think about how you design it so the whole structure can withstand the additional loading that it gets from both the wind and the waves. And as I said, making sure that it's marine proof, that's probably you know, relatively straightforward and can be done fairly easily. Mm -hmm. The actual drivetrain and, and the blades are, are broadly the same, but it's the foundation structures which are very different between onshore and offshore. So is it fair to say then that the future of wind is offshore? Depends where you are in the world. I mean, I think there's still areas of Europe which are ripe for development onshore, but I, I think there's going to be a very big push for offshore for Europe. Other parts of the world, like, like China or in the US, there are still areas which can be used onshore. And I think in terms of costs, onshore is still always going to be a little bit cheaper than, than offshore, just because it's easy to access the wind farms if they're, if they're onshore. So it really much depends on where you are in the world, whether, they, whether it be onshore or offshore. If you look at the projections for the future, then the expectation is that by 2050, we probably have something like five to one onshore to offshore. So five times yeah. as much onshore as onshore offshore. As offshore. Okay. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what do you see the path being to get from the 6% you know, electricity generation that wind represents today to the 30 plus percent that we expect or hope by yeah. 2050? There are a number of things that we, we need to do. One is perhaps more standardization, particularly this is seen as being important for offshore. I mentioned foundations as being a, a big difference there. And foundations are very much bespoke for offshore. You know, each wind farm has its own sort of slightly different type of foundation because of the, the, the seabed conditions differing quite a bit from one place to another. But I think there's a lot we can do to try and 
make some of the foundation structures modular so that although there may be differences from one site to another, you can adapt by using some kind of modular approach. So that you know, you've got standardized components that can, then can be assembled together, perhaps on site, perhaps before they're floated out to the site, which can reduce costs because the more you can standardize components, the, the, the cheaper the cost is. And, and I think for offshore, I think that's one of the, the areas that really could reduce costs. The, the other areas in things like operations and maintenance, again, experience is starting to help here and start to push down the costs. But at the moment, you might be paying anything up to a, a third of the levelized cost of energy for an offshore wind farm or, or just to pay for the maintenance. Hmm. Uh, and, and that's too much. You know, it's at least probably twice what it would be onshore in many cases. Hmm. And we have to think about ways to improve that and try and reduce the costs. And what's, what are those costs due to? What are, what's driving that yeah. cost? A lot of it's down to the logistics. I mean, if you've got a wind farm that's maybe 100 kilometers or 60 miles offshore, getting access to that in the middle of winter can be quite challenging in places like the North Sea. So, you know, something starts to go wrong, you may not be able to go out to fix it for several months. Mm -hmm. So you need to know well ahead of time when things are going to go wrong so you can plan your maintenance. So a lot of it is down to, you know, the fact that you can't just get access overnight or, or, or within, a, within a day or so for, for, for changing parts, whereas that's generally different onshore. Onshore, you need to get a maintenance team to a wind farm relatively rapidly. Mm-hmm. Onshore, you can't. So you need to be much more intelligent in the way that you plan your operations and maintenance. And of course, you've got availability of boats as well, ships. There are a finite number of those that have the lifting capacity for changing something like a gearbox. Uh, you know, these the, the companies that own these maintenance vessels can be booked months in, in advance. Hmm. So that can be a challenge. And that, and that is one of the big challenges we're having scaling up at the moment, you know, just the availability of the vessels for the installation and for the maintenance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's those sorts of things which mean that offshore O&M costs are higher than they are onshore. So reducing costs of offshore wind energy is a priority, but you mentioned that there are several challenges that need to be addressed to expand wind. So what else is a concern? I mean, there's, there's a whole load of things, of course. I mean, I could go through a few of those. One of those is if you're scaling up the amount of electricity that's coming from wind farms to producing that power to then be transmitted and used within a network, how can you manage that? Those wind farms obviously generate when the wind is blowing. They don't generate as much when the wind is lower. How can we accommodate that? And there are different ways of doing that. And one of those, to some extent, is using more intelligent control of the wind farms, where you can uh, operate them perhaps a little bit below how much they can actually produce at a certain time so that you've got some headroom, some capacity to increase their output to respond to demand. The big thing, of course, that everyone is interested in is whether we can actually scale up energy storage. So there's a lot of work at the moment to see what solutions we have, which can become cost effective, whether it's batteries, whether it's electrolysis to produce hydrogen, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, to to an extent, I think we don't totally need to rely on storage. We can do a lot even without significant amounts of storage by having greater amounts of interconnection. So, you know, if you you interconnect wind farms over a very large area, you can manage some of the differences that that you can smooth, smooth out the fluctuations. So that's, that's one of the first lines of defense you should use. And also, of course, the demand itself. Although we, we think of demand as being something which has to be met by the generators, demand can be flexible. You know, nowadays, you know, with the Internet of Things, we can actually make devices to be intelligent enough to switch themselves on and off in response to messages that come from the grid. 
things like refrigeration, for example, doesn't necessarily need to be on all of the time. So there are, lot, there are lots of things we can do around that. Obviously, that won't do everything, and we will have to look at storage. But in terms of storage, I think batteries will, will have a, a, a big part to play. I mean, again, you, you look at the costs of how offshore wind has come down, how the cost of PV has come down, you know, phenomenally in the last sort of 10, 20 years. The costs of batteries have also come down significantly in, in the last 10 years. So I think we'll see a still a very large role for, for battery storage. It's still, although it's expensive, it's still one of the better ways of storing electricity we have at present time. Electrolysis still has some way to go, but I think we've made improvements there. Um, and the production of hydrogen potentially, you know, is useful to store the energy we get from wind farms. People are talking about producing hydrogen offshore wind farms and using it to, you know, to, to put into the gas grid. Potentially that could be a way forward, but it's not terribly efficient. So just because the energy density of hydrogen is not as, not as great as it is for methane, for example. So you mentioned something that I just want to want to drill in a little bit deeper on. So the capacity connecting wind farms from different places to solve for the intermittency challenge, how far can that get us and is it even feasible today to do that, given the grids that we have worldwide? Is that being done today? Well, I mean, grids have always done that to an extent, obviously not because of wind farms, but they've, they've, they've always shifted the power around to, to manage the demand uh, and uh, the supply and the demand. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I think in the developed uh, parts of the world, in Europe, US, and, and some parts of Southeast Asia, then it's very much it's doable, but there is obviously a cost uh, involved there. We need, we need to think about what that cost might be, of course. But there are some parts of the world, perhaps where the grid isn't so developed, where that will be a significant challenge. And, and, and that's where storage will perhaps play a bigger role. Interesting. What are the other major challenges that need to be addressed as we scale up wind? You know, one of the big things at the moment is what do we do with all the blades when they reach end of life? Just recently, there's been an announcement by the big wind energy lobbying organization, Wind Europe, and they're saying that we should no longer be landfilling the wind turbine blades by 2025. So, you know, if we're not going to do that, what, what are we going to do? And there are ways we can uh, recycle blades, but they are expensive at the moment. And that's an area which people are looking at. How can we design them and make them to be more sustainable and, and to be circular? Interesting. Um, so that's, that's a big challenge. So what is the current composition of a wind turbine blade? It's made from composite material, so glass reinforced uh, epoxy or polythene. Mm-hmm. There's also some elements of wood in there, carbon fiber, and obviously some, some metal as well. But it, it's primarily composite material with uh, glass fiber, obviously, re- um, structure, mm-hmm. kind of resin. And that resin is often just, you know, it's, it's used, it's, it's fixed, and it can't be then reused. Mm-hmm. So people are looking at using thermoplastics where that can be reused. It can be melted down and reused after end of life, for example. Hmm. Well, that sounds like an interesting business to be in if you're looking at a 5x growth of the amount of turbines that will be required to figure out how you can make ones that can be yeah. recycled. That seems like a good sure. good idea. And it should be added, of course, that, that, that at least sort of 80 or 90% of the rest of, of the turbine in general is recyclable. You know, a lot of metal in there, steel, which can be recycled. So the blades is probably at the moment the biggest challenge that people have. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. What is the what is the expected lifespan of a wind turbine blade? Well, the expected lifespan of the turbine itself 
is going to be something of the order of 20, 25 years. So the, the blade may well last, last beyond that to some extent. Oh, okay. So we're not talking about something that has to be replaced every five years. These, these blades last no. for decades. They, they last. I mean, sometimes they have to be replaced if there's damage. Okay. But uh, you, would, you would hope that it should, yeah, that it should last the life of the turbine. Mm, interesting. You know, one question is about floating offshore wind. What's the current state of that technology? Well, it's still in its demonstration phase, I think. Mm-hmm. But there's the high wind site in Scotland, which is operating very successfully and with a, quite a high capacity factor as well. So I'm sorry, that's what, what did you just refer to in Scotland? So that's the high wind site up off the coast of Scotland. And the, the advantage, of course, with floating wind is you can actually put your wind farm further out from the coast to, to benefit from higher wind speeds. Mm-hmm. And if you have a wind farm operating in higher wind speeds, it potentially operates for a larger amount of its time at its full capacity. And we talk about something called the capacity factor, which is the average power that a generator produces over a certain period of time, divided by its rated capacity. Mm. That close that is to 100%, then the the better you're utilizing the the generator you've got available. And the high wind side, I think, has one of the highest capacity factors of all the offshore wind farms at present. And so the high wind site is a floating wind farm in Scotland. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Okay. Yes, okay. that's right. Floating wind is, is still a demonstration phase, but the, the results have been very promising. And again, if you look back not too many years, people were saying that, you know, floating wind is, is perhaps not going to make a big impact and it's too expensive. But but again, the, the technology is really coming on there too. And there's a lot of interest in developing solutions for floating wind turbines. Mm-hmm. So for those of us who don't have a clear mental picture of a floating wind turbine can you provide that? So the thing that's in my head, right, are a bunch of turbines on some kind of floating platform, and there's a huge anchor that's keeping it roughly in the same place, and a big cable that's going back to the shore. Is that basically right? More or less. I mean, there's a platform which is floating. Normally, there are multiple anchor lines coming from that. You've got what are called ten- tensioned leg platforms, where the platforms have a buoyancy which make make sure that the cables, maybe four of them, that are connected to the seabed are in tension, keep it in place. Mm. You've also got what are called semi-submersibles, where they're not in tension, but you've got these catenary lines connected to the seabed. And then for deeper water, they have what are called spar boy type arrangements, where you've got uh, a, a spar which projects down below the water with a large sort of uh, counterweight at the bottom, mm. which resists the, the motion of the turbine above. But that's only used for deeper water. But the semi-submersible and the tension lake platforms are perhaps the most promising technologies which are being used at the moment. Hmm. Some, some of these designs have potentially more than one turbine on them. That's, that's another interesting design of a floating platform. So, hmm. Yeah, generally it's one turbine. Hmm. And so if we were on track by 2050 to get to five times the wind energy power capacity that we have today... Where do we have to be by the end of the 2020s? So by 2030, I think that the, the challenge is to, to install something like about 150, 180 gigawatts per, per year. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, we managed to do about half, half that. We need to at least double the install capacity per year within the next decade, I think, to get us on track in any, in any kind of sense. Mm-hmm. 
And just to put that into context with something that we discussed earlier in this conversation, if China's installed capacity last year was 72 gigawatts, we basically need to do twice that year over year. Yes. All right, yes. so twice yes. what China did last year across the entire world. It seems possible. Technically, it's feasible, of course. It's just getting the supply chain in place to do that. That is it for this episode of the podcast. To listen to other conversations or to watch our videos, head over to our website, climatenow.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter and be among the first to know about new releases and live conversations. Thanks so much and hope you can join us for our next conversation.